a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm having a hard time getting uh, my head around what day it is. And I went through yesterday, which was uh, Tuesday, June 1st, pretty much the whole day thinking it was Monday. I produce a podcast for a number of different hosts, and I actually uh, got in touch with one of my hosts. Hey, you plan on doing a show today? Me not realizing his show would have been produced on Monday under normal circumstances. Bottom line is, I'm getting old, and I forget a lot. How are you? Anyway, thanks for joining us today. This is The Brian Hyde Show, and this is a program that is dedicated to persuading people to think for themselves. Sometimes I jokingly say my goal is to brainwash my audience into thinking for themselves to the point they don't even need me anymore, which I would take as a huge compliment, because that's that's the goal here is to get people on their own two feet, marching forward under their own power and with their own choosing of which direction they want to go. But that's not something that a lot of people in society are willing to do. So if you're one of those few, thank you for clicking play. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for uh, being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. A lot of pressure out there on, you know, stick to the narrative. Don't question things. Don't uh, don't doubt. Well, when someone is telling you, hey, you have to accept the official version of reality. You've got a problem when you can't ask questions without being accused of being some kind of subversive. So welcome to the ranks. I hope you find lots of things that are thought-provoking and worthwhile of consideration. What you do with this information, though, totally up to you. There's no guarantee that uh, you have to agree with it. No implication that I'm going to look down on you if you disagree. It's your worldview. You have to own it. By the way, our show is brought to you in part by MonticelloCollege.org, also by Pure-Light.com and HSLAmmo.com. So we just got through the Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, everywhere we went, it took me a little while. We were driving along, my my family and I did a fair amount of traveling over the Memorial Day weekend. And uh, my kids were asking, well, hey, why why are the flags at half-mast? And, you know, being a dummy, I was like, well, you know, there was a mass shooting earlier this week that uh, took place in California, which it did. I think it was Friday, maybe Friday or Saturday. Anyway, the bottom line is uh, <laughs> that wasn't the reason. It was, it was about two days into the weekend when I went, oh, oh, yes, and there's Memorial Day weekend as well. Everywhere we went, we saw plenty of cemeteries, well-attended, lots of people placing flowers and memorializing and otherwise uh, recognizing and honoring the dead. But now that the holiday has come and gone, and I'm not trying to be insensitive by asking this, but I think this may be a good time, something we couldn't do during the actual holiday because it would have been seemed, you know, disrespectful or out of step. This might be a good time to evaluate, though. What exactly were we observing over the weekend? Because I, I saw a lot of, you know, differing ideas and differing opinions and outrage. You know, some people, I don't believe this this organization didn't even have a flag flying, much less at half staff. How dare they? You know, and it's, you know, it's it's the idea that everybody has to be in lockstep on this. Well, I'm grateful for people like uh, Pat Buchanan, who dares to ask the question that very few have been willing to ask. And here's the question he asks. Were the wars wise 
Were they worth it? Pat Buchanan says, through the long Memorial Day weekend, anyone who read the papers or watched television could not miss or be unmoved by it. Story after story after story of the fallen, of those who had given the last full measure of devotion to their country. Now he says, heartrending is an apt description of those stories. Searing are the videos of those who survived and returned home without arms or legs. But he says, the stories couldn't help but bring some questions to mind. While the service and sacrifice were always honorable and often heroic, never to be forgotten, were the wars these soldiers were sent to fight and die in wise? Were they necessary? Oh, see, now this is where people start to start that that little feeling of discomfort. Hey, I don't know if you should be asking stuff like this, but let's proceed. Pat Buchanan asks, what became of the causes for which these Americans were sent to fight in the new century, with thousands to die and tens of thousands to come home with permanent wounds. What became of the causes for which they were sent to fight? The longest war of this new century, the longest in our history, the defining endless war or forever war, was Afghanistan. In 2001, we sent an army halfway around the world to exact retribution on Al-Qaeda for 9-11 an attack that rivaled Pearl Harbor in the numbers of dead and wounded Americans. Because Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden had been given sanctuary by the Taliban in Kabul, who refused to give him up, we invaded, overthrew that Islamist regime, and cleansed Tora Bora of Al-Qaeda. Mission accomplished, but then the mission changed. In control of a land that had seen off British and Soviet imperialists, we hubristically set about establishing a democracy and sent hundreds of thousands of Americans to hold off the rebel resistance for two decades while we went about nation-building. We did not succeed. All U.S. troops are to be gone by the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and the Taliban we ousted has never been closer to recapturing power in Kabul. Today's issue, how do we save the Afghans who allied with us in this war so they don't face the terrible vengeance of a victorious Taliban? Buchanan says the second American war of this century was the invasion and occupation of Iraq. To strip its dictator, Saddam Hussein, of weapons of mass destruction with which he intended to attack the United States. That's what the official narrative says. Begun in 2003, the war has lasted 18 years. No weapons of mass destruction were ever found. Most U.S. troops have come and gone. And today, the Baghdad regime rules at the sufferance of Shiite militia who look to Tehran for guidance and support. Now, this may be painful, but let's tally up some of the the costs here. Afghanistan and Iraq cost us 7,000 dead and 40,000 wounded. Were they necessary wars, Pat Buchanan asks. Were they wise? Were they worth it? In the second decade of this century, we intervened in Syria to back the good rebels seeking to overthrow Bashar Bashar Assad and became the indispensable ally in Saudi Arabia's murderous air war to stop the Houthi rebels from consolidating power in Yemen. In both Syria and Yemen, Hundreds of thousands of soldiers and civilians have been wounded, killed, uprooted, or driven into exile. Both countries are listed among the humanitarian catastrophes of the 21st century. Having helped to inflict so much damage on these countries, again, Pat Buchanan asks, did we succeed in our missions? 
Today, after just six years of fighting, the Houthis still control the Yemeni capital of Sana'a, and Assad just won a fourth term as president with 95% of the vote. What, you doubt the election? Shame on you. Just kidding. Never mind. That's another topic for another time. In 2011, President Barack Obama ordered U.S. air attacks on Colonel Muammar Gaddafi's forces in Libya, beginning a NATO intervention that would lead to his overthrow and lynching. In 2020, however, the future of Libya was not being decided by the European Union or the U.S., but fought over by proxy forces supported and supplied by Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Russia. And Barack Osama had, or Barack, I'm sorry, that was a terrible Freudian slip. Barack Obama had conceded that the worst mistake of his presidency was not to plan for the aftermath of his 2011 decision to topple the Libyan dictator. Now again, the men and women sent to the Middle East to fight for these wars did their duty and deserve the gratitude of their countrymen that they received this Memorial Day weekend. But Pat Buchanan asks, where is the accounting from those who sent them to fight bleed and die in what turned out to be unwinnable wars, or at the least, wars they were not given the requisite weapons or forces to win. What makes these questions of importance, and not only to historians, is that the cry of the warhawk may be heard again in the land. We hear calls to confront Iran before the mullahs build an atom bomb, and to challenge Putin and arm Ukraine to retake Crimea and push Russia out of the Donbass. We hear talk of the American Navy contesting Beijing's claims in the East and South China Seas, including to Taiwan. His bottom line is, he says, the stories of Memorial Day should make us think long and hard before we launch any more unnecessary, unwise, or unwinnable wars. And by the way, I think I should point out here, just in in fairness to Pat Buchanan, he is one of the few voices of sanity who actually warned about the, the, the going price of global gamesmanship. The cost of empire, the cost of sending, you know, forces abroad every time we feel like, you know, there's something in America's interest that has to take place here. And by America's interest, I mean the interest of the political class in America. Because none of those wars, whether in Afghanistan or whether in Iraq or any of these other areas, Libya, arming the, uh, you know, the Saudis and so forth, none of them had anything to do with your natural rights and my natural rights, the reason for which the United States government was called into existence. That's a painful truth, and I understand it. I'm not trying to rub salt in anybody's wounds, but my point here is voices like Pat Buchanan warned against this folly a long time ago, and people weren't listening then. I hope they listen now. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, thank you for joining our growing audience of wrong thinkers. If you haven't been to thebrianhydeshow.com, I just want to, you know, gently recommend, go subscribe to the podcast. It's very simple. Look at the show notes for today. This is June 2nd, 2021. You can find a a link right down there at the bottom of the page that will allow you to subscribe. You can also consider becoming a monthly patron. That's a monthly donor. You know, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you find, you know, of, of value if you wish to support this show. It just helps me stay focused on finding and curating and, and 
putting out the best content that I possibly can, and I appreciate each and everybody who, who helps in this endeavor. So, have you been paying attention to prices? Oh, I've seen a couple of pictures in the last couple of days that were just shocking. And it was lumber. Looking at lumber. Um, a friend of mine in uh, Utah County posted a, a picture of what $1,000 worth of lumber looked like at the end of 2020. So this would have been December of last year. And it was just a stack of, you know, different sheets of OSB, 2x4s, and so forth. And, I mean, we're talking, it, it would have filled a good-sized pickup truck to capacity. It, it probably would have been, you know, right at the, at the weight limits of a one-ton truck. Versus what $1,000 worth of lumber looks like today. And I'm not joking when I tell you $1,000 worth of lumber today was maybe a couple dozen, if that, two-by-fours. And we're not talking long lengths, 20 feet long. No, we're talking like, you know, six, eight feet long. Maybe there was 20 of them. I didn't count them, but it was it was a shocking. You could probably carry this in, you know, a, a very small pickup and still have plenty of room for whatever else you can afford, <laughs> which may not be much. So as we're watching the prices go higher and higher, on everything around us, Costco is sounding the alarm. Hey, you know, 20% rise in, you know, meat prices and other essential items. Um, what's happening, and I, I wish there were a more delicate way to say this, but I can't. What's happening is we are all slowly becoming poorer. And it's not through any, you know, mismanagement on your part or my part. It's not that we're dumb and we just don't know how to spend our money. It's that the purchasing power of our dollars are decreasing. Well, how could that be? Gee, I don't know. If you just dump, oh, I don't know, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy, how could that possibly water down the purchasing power of every dollar that's already in the economy? Hmm, what a mystery. Bottom line is, inflation is catching on. It's it's taking place. And things are becoming more expensive. And that's scary on a lot of different fronts. I know some people are like, oh, I welcome it. Why, at this rate, I'll be paying off my house with one paycheck. Yeah, but you'll also be paying $600 for a loaf of bread. So, you know, it kind of it kind of evens out there. There is no free lunch. But there may be a silver lining in our economic turmoil. And for this, I, I, I'm going to give a very shameless plug for the American Institute for Economic Research. I visit this website daily. And I've subscribed to their email updates, which come to my inbox daily. They cover a very wide variety of topics. They have been actually one of the most rational and well-researched voices on the COVID lockdowns, why lockdowns don't work, what it's doing to us economically as well as to our our freedoms and our our personal and, and property rights. Very, very well thought out individuals. And there was a piece published by Donald J. Boudreaux, on the American Institute for Economic Research website, thank goodness for economic ignorance. Now, that may sound kind of backhanded, but I want you to hear him out. He has an excellent point to make here. He says, thank goodness for widespread and deeply seated economic ignorance. Seriously, thank goodness. Without widespread economic ignorance, he says the world would be a much poorer place. Now, for this claim, He says, I have quantifiable proof, namely my income, other economists' income, as well as the incomes of many merchants with whom I and my fellow economists deal. 
He says, well, on the earning fronts, I, like all my fellow economists, have a long way to go before catching up with the likes of Elon Musk or even Rachel Maddow. He says, my annual income is well above that of the median American worker. Indeed, my income is above that of the median worker in my age cohort, a cohort whose members, because we have decades of job experience and accumulated skills, earn more than do many younger cohorts. So he asks the question, why is my income so high? Answer, economic ignorance. Nearly every cent that I earn is generated by my satisfying other people's demands for reduced economic ignorance. I like that. I mean, look, you may say, that sounds pretty self-serving, Mr. Boudreaux, but he's got a point. If your job is to uh, to get out there and to fix or to help uh, alleviate economic ignorance, well, then the more economic ignorance there is, you know, the more job security you have, the more you're needed, I guess would be another way to put it. Donald J. Boudreaux says, sometimes, as in the case of many of the students I teach at George Mason University, the demand for economic enlightenment that I supply comes directly from those who pay for it. Other times, as when organizations such as the Fraser Institute and AIER pay me to lecture or to write, the demand comes ultimately from donors who hope that my speechifying and wordsmithing will fall in enlightening ways on minds still benighted by economic igno- ignorance. And so, horrors, if most people already understood basic economic realities, he says I'd be unemployed. If most people already knew the truths that I teach, truths such as that protective tariffs create no new jobs on net while they reduce most people's living standards, that minimum wage legislation hurts many of the very workers it's meant to help, and that antitrust interventions stymie rather than stimulate economic competition, well, he says no one would pay me to do this job that I so enjoy doing. And while my being unemployed and penniless would be tragic enough, He says, this essay is not about me. In fact, join me in forgetting about me. Think instead of the countless people who benefit from the economic ignorance that other people pay me to dispel. Think, for example, of wine retailers and vintners. He says, I spend a significant portion of my income on wine. In a world without economic ignorance, no one would pay me to do what I do, and thus I'd have no income to spend at my favorite wine shops. Wine sales would fall, some sales clerks would lose their jobs, as would workers in vineyards. Likewise, for workers in the food industry, I spend an even larger portion of my income at restaurants. In a world without economic ignorance, I'd earn no money to spend on dining out. Restaurants and their cooks and waitstaff would suffer, as would, of course, all the workers whose efforts are required to supply restaurants with furniture, food, and drink. He says, I also spend a good deal of money on clothing. Unable to earn income in a world full of economic enlightenment, I, of course, would buy less clothing. That means Nordstrom and other clothing retailers would feel the pinch, as would their workers. Obviously, he says, what holds true for wine, restaurant meals, and clothing holds true also for everything else on which I spend my hard-earned income. Now, an econometrician would quantify the value to humanity of the economic ignorance that I annually work to reduce. This scholar could so quantify with a precise dollar measurement the value of this economic ignorance by tracking all of my spending and then tracking the spending of others by wine store owners, by restaurant waiters, by clothing retailers, etc., that makes my spending possible. Now, Donald Boudreaux says, look, I, have, I myself haven't done such a tracking in the long and economically stimulating uh, effects of my spending. But he says, I'm sure it runs annually into the tens of millions of dollars. And I'm just one economist. 
Add the full value of the spending that my income makes possible to the value of the spending by thousands of my fellow economists, and it becomes undeniable that one crucial source of modern humanity's prosperity is economic ignorance. For without this ignorance, we economists would have no incomes to spend. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button right here because we're coming up on the break, but isn't that an interesting way to look at things? And I'm not suggesting that, yeah, therefore, you know, more economic chaos. This is not the broken windows theory, okay? It's not like, gee, if a kid would just break a window, you know, then it would give the glass maker, you know, some, some work. And No. It's understanding how all of these things are interconnected. At least that's what I'm taking away. We'll come back to Donald Boudreaux's article in just a few moments. Again, you'll find a link to it in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Again, I thank you for making this show a part of your day. If you haven't subscribed, please consider subscribing. You'll find the link at thebrianhydeshow.com right at the bottom of today's show notes. That's for June 2nd, 2021. I'm sharing an article from Donald J. Boudreau. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research, and it's Thank Goodness for Economic Ignorance. He says, you know, lots of business owners and workers, whether they're aware of this fact or not, depend on economic ignorance. Where everyone is informed about the economy and economics as he is and other economists are, he says, no one would hire economists to do what I do. In such a bleak alternate universe, Rather than perform as a benefactor to the, of the public by teaching economics and, more importantly, by spending my high income, I'd be a pathetic public charge. Unable to earn income, I'd be of no use to anyone, and he says the same would be true for all other economists. So here's that silver lining he sees. He says, reflecting on this reality puts me in awe of the universe's happy design. Because of this design, economic ignorance is rampant. And there's a resulting high demand for my and other economists' services. Were the universe designed less well? People would not need economists such as me. People would naturally and without instruction understand that jobs that workers currently perform are not the only jobs that those workers can perform. In a world of widespread economic enlightenment, he says my fellow human beings would grasp the fact that time and resources I spend teaching economics are time and resources that could be used to produce other things of value to humanity. If everyone were as economically informed as I am, there would be widespread understanding that while people willingly incur costs to, in order to obtain benefits, the cost incurred are not the benefits received. And so he says, I say again, thank goodness for economic ignorance. Without it, no one would spend resources trying to reduce it. And I and thousands of other economists would be out of work. The resulting loss of spending and rise in unemployment would be tragic. Of course, the world would, in fact, be a much better place if economic fallacies were less prevalent and less widespread. Not the least of these fallacies is the one that holds that economies fail to the extent that they don't protect existing jobs. I know, it's kind of an interesting um, and maybe a little sideways approach that you, you hadn't thought of before, but I'm not a dedicated economist. 
but there is, there's nothing that has opened my mind more to how the world works than delving into the basics of economics. And, and I'll take a moment here to recommend a, a book. It's called Economics in One Lesson. It was written by Henry Hazlitt. I think this was published back in the 1940s. It's been a while since I've checked the, uh, the, uh, the copyright page, so I can't tell you for sure. But it's been, there for, it's been around for a long time. The economic principles still hold true. They're not outdated. Well, if he wrote it that long ago, why, he probably you know, wrote it with a quill pen and rode a horse to take the manuscript to the printer. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's solid economic advice. But my point still stands. If you really want to understand the world around us, you've got to be willing to delve into economics, which, more simply put, is just the study of how people interact, why people make the choices that they do. And by the way, it dovetails very nicely with, with what I consider you know, my, my goal or my work, which is to uh, proclaim liberty, to help make popular ideas and principles that are sound, to expose unsound and dangerous ideas and principles and to persuade people that freedom of conscience, personal liberty, private property rights, free market economics are the better, happier, and healthier way for people to interact with each other on a voluntary basis and that's where real prosperity is found. Wow. I think I just summed up the show right there. I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. We're going to call it a day. Nothing more to do here. Move along. I kid. Actually, I have some other fun stuff to talk about. I don't know if you have uh, have followed some of the talk about uh, the, these ransomware things. I just saw a news story, and this one really caught my attention because it says, you know, five of the nation's biggest beef producers have been attacked by ransomware and have had to shut down their operations. And I was like, gosh, dang it. I'm just in the process of getting settled in after a move, and I, you know, I'm looking forward to celebrating by throwing a brisket on the the pit barrel cooker (sighs) and here goes the price of beef i mean it's we're seeing an artificial shortage being introduced darn you ransomware people and by the way the finger seems to be pointing pretty hard at russia and i'm just wondering if this isn't some pretext to you know uh, a causus bellus the the justification to to go to war with russia at some point i hope that's not the case but one of the other things that has been very interesting is as as these ransomware stories have started to circulate, and I predict you're going to see more of them because it's a handy crisis, right? Never underestimate a crisis. Never let one go to waste. It's a great chance to expand power. This is also an opportunity because often these ransomware uh, perpetrators say, we want you to pay us off in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. This was the case with the pipeline that got shut down in the south and southeast um, here just a couple of weeks ago. Remember when gasoline was in short supply and there was a little panic in about the eastern half of the U.S.? Okay, same kind of thing. Well, you know, they're using cryptocurrency, so we should ban it. We should take away a decentralized option of people who don't want to be part of the Federal Reserve, fractional reserve, uh, you know, banking cartel. Yeah, this seems just a little too convenient. There's a great article by J.P. Koning, this too from the American Institute for Economic Research. Fighting ransomware doesn't require banning cryptocurrency. J.P. Koning says, Ransomware has seeped into the mainstream consciousness thanks to the recent shutdown of the Colonial Pipeline. Crippled by a ransomware attack, Colonial ended up paying $4.4 million ransom in bitcoins to free itself from its attackers. 
In the meantime, the U.S. eastern seaboard suffered from gasoline shortages. Now, what exactly is ransomware? Well, it's malicious software that takes control of a computer, say by encrypting files or by threatening to publicly expose data. The ransomware operator only releases that control after receiving a ransom payment, usually Bitcoin, but sometimes Monero. So while Colonial's attack grabbed headlines, the ransomware problem has been growing for years. In a recent survey by Sophos of 5,400 heads of IT at corporations and government agencies around the world, 6.6% reported paying a ransom in 2020. And that's, that's actually a higher number than I would have thought. Average price would be about $170,000, which works out to tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of ransoms paid. In an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal, Lee Reiners suggests banning cryptocurrency in order to get rid of ransomware. His argument is that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin don't have any social purpose apart from speculation, so getting rid of it would make the world better off. J.P. Koenig says, hey, I think that ban that a ban is overkill. There are ways to go about attacking ransomware that have a smaller blast radius. First of all, he says, let's cover where Reiners and I agree. He explicitly links the ransomware phenomenon to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin when he says that ransomware can't succeed without cryptocurrency. And he's right. No Bitcoin, no ransomware, boom. But J.P. Koenig says, I'd like to add a caveat. Only large-ticket ransomware relies on cryptocurrency. Small-ticket stuff never required it. According to security writer Danny Palmer, the first strain of ransomware emerged in 1989. It asked for a payment in bank drafts, cashier's checks, or money orders to a P.O. box in Panama. But a check is an awfully risky way for a criminal to exact ransom. Ransomware gangs eventually moved on to centralized payment processors to extort money from victims. Ransom A a 2006 strain of ransomware, froze victims' computers and would only release them when 1099, that's $10.99, had been transferred by remittance company Western Union. Another ransomware strain in 2011 impersonated the FBI and required a $100 payment via MoneyPack. That's a prepaid card product offered by Green Dot Bank. But as you can see, this is all small-ticket ransomware. A gang couldn't lock down, say, a large bank and ask for a $250,000 ransom via Western Union or Money Pack. He says the other problem with Western Union and Money Pack, at least from a criminal's perspective, is that these systems are plastic. They can be updated. Thanks to pressure from law enforcement and politicians, Western Union and Money Pack eventually modified their payments processes to make it tougher for criminals to use them for extracting ransoms. So ransomware gangs turned to gift cards. Alpha Ransomware, which debuted in 2016, would encrypt your data and demand $400 in iTunes gift cards for a decryption key. But a criminal can't extract large ransoms with gift cards. Most stores don't sell cards with face values above $500. Interesting stuff here. So we'll come back to J.P. Koenig's article here in just a moment. We'll get the final segment for this hour wrapped up. Look, I'm I'm not invested in... uh, cryptocurrency so i don't feel like i have a dog in this i probably should be though and it's not just because man i see everybody getting rich there's uh, there's uh, you know crypto millionaires out there by the dozens i don't know maybe the hundreds <laughs> i don't know but i'm very concerned anytime i see someone trying to justify removing a possibility of decentralizing government control or in this case quasi government control of the money supply 
So I'd like a little closer look. We'll come back to the article in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from J.P. Koning from the American Institute for Economic Research. Fighting ransomware doesn't require banning cryptocurrency. And something he points out here that is worth considering is with cryptocurrencies, ransomware gangs have discovered the perfect payment rail. So, yeah, it's true. They may think, well, crypto is the way to go. No one needs to provide one's identity to use cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Monero. Users can remain pseudonymous. Unlike Western Union or Money Pack, these systems cannot exclude users. They're not plastic. They cannot be recoded. To boot, a ransomware gang can sit on their cryptocurrency stash knowing that law enforcement has no ability to freeze their balances. And unlike gift cards and money packs, there is no maximum value to a Bitcoin transaction. So censorship-resistant payments in networks like Bitcoin have opened the field to industrial-scale ransomware attacks in the range of $10,000 to $50 million. Nonetheless, he says, a prohibition on cryptocurrencies goes too far. Now, who uses Bitcoin? Reiner's discussed most illicit cryptocurrency usage as speculative, and he's right. Most people who buy Bitcoin are just betting on its price. But Koning says, I'm not sure that we can use the it's just speculation to write off an entire industry. After all, we've chosen to keep Las Vegas and the gambling industry legal, and gambling is 100% speculative. Games of chance don't, deserve, don't serve a crucial societal need, but they are a form of entertainment. And apart from criminals and gamblers, there are two other groups of cryptocurrency users worth mentioning. Outsiders like Salvia de, de, uh, Divinorum retailers who've been cut off from centralized services for engaging in legal but unfashionable activities may turn to cryptocurrencies to make payments. Another group of licit, non-speculative users is hobbyists who oppose centralization. See, that's, that's the group I would likely fall into. Now, these are not large groups, but they do exist. Koning says banning cryptocurrencies would mean depriving these two groups and potentially others of services they value. So the alternative to a ban is to maintain the status quo. Just let law enforcement agencies like FBI, Interpol, and RCMP do what they normally do, which is catch the bad guys. But there's a problem with this approach. Most ransomware activity originates from Russia. The Russian government turns a blind eye to ransomware gangs on the condition that those operators don't attack Russian companies or agencies. And so ransomware operates outside the reach of traditional Western law enforcement. The status quo also involves continued pressure on cryptocurrency exchanges to set up anti-money laundering defenses. Exchanges are the most liquid venues for buying and selling cryptocurrencies. By universalizing anti-money laundering measures, ransomware gangs would be cut off from selling their proceeds. And again, the problem here is Russia. Russian cryptocurrency exchanges serve as venues for laundering and will continue to do so as long as local authorities sanction their behavior, which gets, gets us to an embargo on ransom payments. Industry groups and other umbrella organizations like the U.S. Conference of Mayors already exhort their members not to pay ransoms. So does the FBI. And they have good reasons for trying to set up an informal embargo. 
Sending a ransom encourages ransomware gangs to continue attacks. If everyone suddenly stopped paying, the ransomware industry's income would be smothered and it would soon collapse. But these do-not-pay exhortations really don't work well without a good coxswain, someone who makes sure that everyone is following the same rhythm. Individual companies or agencies have a big incentive to defect from the no-ransom optimum. If they quietly pay their attacker, they can get a decryption key and avoid the hassles of downtime and rebuilding systems from scratch. So J.P. Koenig says what's needed is an authority who can enforce the embargo by calling out defectors and disciplining them for paying a ransom. Now, a few state governments, including North Carolina and New York, are trying to take on this role by introducing anti-ransom payment legislation. And to date, none of this legislation has passed. But to be effective, that coxswain seems to be a, needs to be a much bigger actor than a state government. Now, the U.S. Treasury already has an agency at its disposal for sanctioning bad actors. That's the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC. To implement a ransom payment embargo, OFAC could announce that within a specified time period, say nine months, it will start to add all ransomware gangs to its list of specially designated nationals, or SDN. When OFAC designates an organization as an SDN, it becomes illegal for a U.S. citizen to do business with it. So paying a ransom to any gang on OFAC's list would be prohibited. Corporations and agencies would quickly shift to the ideal do-not-pay equilibrium. And with revenue driving, or drying up, rather, ransomware gangs would exit the business. Now, pre-announcing a policy of adding gangs to the SDN list would give enough lead time to corporations and agencies to build up their IT lines of defense. After all, once gangs are on the SDN list, organizations that are attacked by these gangs won't have the easy out of a ransom payment. Now, this is just a sketch of a potential solution, of course. A well-designed embargo would require much more attention to detail. But with OFAC as coxswain, an embargo might achieve everything that a ban on cryptocurrency promises to achieve without depriving gamblers, outsiders, and hobbyists of a product they utilize. It would also be more effective than the status quo, which is not capable of stopping criminals who operate with impunity from non-compliant jurisdictions. You know, I, I am trying to remember where I've heard some of these similar arguments. I mean, I think one of the reasons why a lot of uh, countries have decided, well, you know, we're trying to make things as cashless as possible. We don't want people using cash. Well, why is that? Because only criminals use cash. Oh, well, so they do. So do governments. <laughs> How many billion did uh, President Obama send over on a Learjet to, uh, to Iran? I don't know. I'm just, you know, I'm just asking a question here. I really like the idea of privatized currency. And I know for some people that's a scary thing. Well, but what if somebody, you know, creates a currency that everybody likes? Well, so what? If they have confidence in it, if they believe that's a good store of value, then why not? But instead we have, you know, these weird mixed messages that come from legal tender laws and, you know, that... uh, that create problems like we talked about last week with the case of Robert Carey, the Las Vegas businessman who paid his employees in gold and silver coins and then was hung out to dry by the IRS for so-called tax evasion because on the coins it said, hey, 50 U.S. dollars on that one-ounce gold double eagle. And he said, if that's legal tender, then, you know, I just paid you, you know, $50 for each of those coins. 
You don't have to declare this on your taxes. You're under the minimum reporting threshold. I know it seems like a scofflaw thing to some people, and I, you know, I can't help you there. I, um, I'm looking at it from a slightly different perspective. I think what it's doing is it's revealing we have a real problem with our monetary system. And, and I'm just going to be bold here and tell you, the problem that you're seeing right now with inflation, those rising prices, it's not a matter of companies being greedy. It's a matter of those dollars out there in circulation losing their purchasing power. And they're losing it because so much money is being printed up, and this is part of fractional reserve banking. You don't have to have, you know, exact this exact amount in gold sitting in Fort Knox to uh, represent each dollar bill or hundred dollar bill that's printed and then put into circulation. Much of it is created out of thin air, and it's backed up with lofty things like, "Well, this is the full faith and credit of the American people," because nobody would ever doubt that. But it's not enough. And those colored pieces of paper, which, I mean, I'm happy when I have them in my wallet, but they're, they're just paper. They don't have intrinsic value. So I want to see competing currencies. I want people to come up with ways to store that value, whether it be cryptocurrency, whether it be, uh, you know, precious metals, even if they have to do, you know, tiny portions of precious metals to make it so that it's more divisible. And able to be used for, you know, buying yourself lunch or something like that. I think we have to have alternatives. And the people I feel worst for are the people who are trying to live on a fixed income. The folks with money in the bank, you know, or those maybe who have, you know, their mattress stuffed full of $20 bills. Inflation is a very steady but invisible tax that is taking away from them what they have stored up in terms of value because it's robbing them of the purchasing power of every dollar that they have sitting in the bank. Now you may think, well, I don't have a dog in that fight, but I don't know. I'm, I'm becoming very leery of things that, uh, that are not within my immediate control. In other words, I don't think you really own something unless you can actually put your hands on it. So whatever money I have in the bank, <laughs> not much at that. It really exists in the form of electrons and, you know, somebody's note on a ledger somewhere. I'm thinking that a person would be very wise to diversify where their money is. Have some in hard assets, have some, you know, in crypto, have some in the bank. But don't be surprised when you start looking around and going, hey, this doesn't buy as much as it used to. There's a reason for that. Economics in One Lesson with Henry Hazlitt would be a great place to start learning about it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.